Welcome to a very special edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with prolific legendary jazz drummer Lewis Hayes. This Detroit native is still going very strong in the jazz world. In 2015, he released a beautiful new album called Return of the Jazz Communicators. So in those early Detroit days, things were hopping, and he was gigging with everyone, with cats like Kenny Burrell and Doug Atkins. That led him to New York City and gigs early on with Horace Silver and the great Cannonball Adderley. And that only opened the gates to a huge mass of gigs with the likes of Freddie Hubbard, Kenny Barron, Woody Shaw, and the great Dexter Gordon. These days, he is 79 years old and sounds hungrier than ever to keep the grand jazz wagon rolling forth. Please, get to know this amazing man and dig this interview, my friends. Everything is okay, Joe. Everything is wonderful. I'm here and glad to speak to you. Man, I am, it's an honor to speak with you, sir. That's, that's exactly what I like to hear. So thank you for taking some time out today. I appreciate it. Me too. I'm glad that I'm here. We're doing this. It's magnificent. Right on. Yes, sir. So I'm going to start off here and talk about the hyper-present in your life, about what's going on lately, and I know that you have your new 2015 album, Return of the Jazz Communicators. Give me an idea about how this album's doing and what's going on in your world lately. That album was doing very well. It went to number one on those charts. Right on. So that was great. The same group we're getting ready to... I'm going to do a tribute to Horace Silver with that same group on Blue Note Records. How does that feel coming full circle after all these years to be able to do a tribute to Horace? It makes me feel very special to have made history with these magnificent special guys, and I'm still here. I'm still on this side able to think about and listen to this music and and play this art form, and think about all of these musicians that I had, like I said, made all this history with, and I'm still here. You know, I'm not able to, to uh, you know, to make any history with them anymore, but I'm still here doing this. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful feeling. Speaking of all these years of longevity, before I depart the, the present and go back to your beginnings in Detroit, is it more magical? Is there more emotion playing now than when you started out as your career was going on? I would say when you're starting out, you are trying to make sure that you're, you're growing. In coming from Detroit to New York, I had a lot of growing to do, and I had an opportunity to make history with these magnificent musicians that were here especially at that time in 1956 with Horace Silver, being in a band that the personnel didn't stay the same. It was the same with Horace Silver with me. It gave me the opportunity to grow. And most artists, when you come from someplace else and you're young, you need the opportunity to grow. And I had that being with Horace Silver. So that's a different feeling. After you get to a certain place in your life, things change when you have a family and making money, all, all of that things, you, you get older, you, you, I still have the, 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 the feeling and I feel good when I get on stage and start playing, but it's different now because I've already proven myself on a certain level, yeah. on a certain high level. I've made all of these recordings with so many artists, I, I can't do that again, I can't repeat it because they're not even here, so... <laughs> so I've done that already. 
Yeah. Go back. So let me ask you this. Let me go back to the beginnings of your life in Detroit. How does a boy from Detroit grow up to become a jazz legend with as much beautiful jazz mileage as you have on your odometer? Well, my father and mother were into the arts, so they were music was around, and some other people in the neighborhood. This naturally, when I came, it was before television, so nobody was at home watching television. They was dealing with art form, music, a lot around my beginnings coming up. And I had a magnificent cousin. Actually, my father was named Louis Hayes also. My mother played piano. I had a cousin. His name was Clarence Stamps, and he was an excellent drummer, but he never left Detroit. If he had came to New York in the 40s, he would have been a, a, made a, a statement here. But he never left. And I was his only student. I started out playing left-handed. He changed me to right-handed, playing right-handed. He taught me basically everything that I, he, what I needed to know. When I took lessons at those other schools, I learned a little bit. But actually, my cousin taught me, he taught me the basics. And he would say things in a certain way. But you can, a person can tell you, show you things, but it's up to you to want to do it and be able to deal with what they have said to you and take it to the level that it should be, you know you want to take it on. It's up to your brain and, and you working it out to put it together yourself. So that's what happened. He showed me and said certain things to me, and I took it from there. So that's how, and, and then people that I, were, I was around, and at that time Detroit had so many musicians that could play on such a high level I could just start naming people, which people that we all know, like Barry Harris and Tommy Flanagan and Kenny Burrell and Donald Byrd, Doug Watkins and Paul Chambers. I could start naming so many people. Pepper Adams, all these people could play. And Alvin Jones, they were older than I was at the time, and I couldn't get in bars. I wasn't supposed to be in bars. But but, uh, they had this place called the World Stage, and I saw these guys playing in in that place. And Detroit was a place where uh, your ability to play, people in the audience, they knew what you were doing. There was a lot of pressure put on you to play well. They put you in, in a certain environment. If you couldn't play well too well, they would let you know. There's a lot of pressure on a young person. So I was not comfortable playing around those guys that I just mentioned. I had my compadres that I was dealing with, and certain things happened for me when I was young. Uh, I started working in a, in, a, in a teenage club called the Club Sedan, and I had a band, and they called it the Lewis Hayes Sedanians. And I worked at another teenage club, Tropicano, and just doing little jobs. And pretty soon, the older guys got aware of me. So I kind of had opportunity to graduate from the guys that I was playing with that was my age and start playing with older musicians. That helped out a, a lot. So I was able to come to New York more or less the same time 
as the musicians that I was that was that was like ten years older than I was. I, I was right here at the same time they were. Alvin and different people. That that's when I really got to know them and was recording with them, and they got to know me. So it, it worked out like that. You know, it's interesting. I hear a lot of these young cats talk about all of the rigors of what they go through in college, and then I hear about cats from your generation. That's an incredible educational experience, not only in Detroit, but to come to New York to be around such folks with clout. You had to have learned an incredible amount in that short amount of time. Yes, New York, I was able to be around actually all the people that I was just admired. Because in Detroit, I knew names, and I heard people on record, but I didn't know what they really looked like, and I never seen them in person. That's what I didn't know what they looked like. But in New York, I was meeting people in an, in, in, in an environment, in this environment where exactly where I wanted to be. I mean, I was with Papa Joe Jones and Philly Joe and, yeah, well, I could just start naming, you know, all the people, the artists that were here. And I came up listening to Charlie Parker. Drummers, was, that was my instrument that I loved and chose to, to how I chose to play and ex- express myself. But I really listened a lot to other artists that played instruments, especially Charlie Parker people from that generation. And then when I was here, he had just, I only saw him once in person. I had opportunity of playing with Cannonball, Adley, as we know. And Cannon, he was a brilliant mind. And he, like I said, that's the closest I ever will ever get to playing with Charlie Parker was Cannonball, because Cannonball was, he was so highly intelligent, and he played on such a high level. I was fortunate to have this relationship with Horace Silver when I first got here. His writing, and and to be so comfortable with him, how I could grow, and then go from there to Cannonball, where it was really a, a, a family affair with him and his brother Nat and Sam Jones. And then when Joe Zavanu, when he got there, that made it, it completed that feeling, that family feeling. I was fortunate to to be able to do those things like that. Yeah, without a doubt. So from your first drum set at the age of 10, was music always woven into what you were going to do later on, or did you have other dreams? Well, actually, music was, uh, after I was about uh, 15, music just took over. Something that I had in my mind I really wanted to do. What I thought about when I was real young was archaeology. Actually, I kind of, Got involved in that a little bit, was thinking about it, but that was something that was, <laughs> was out there someplace. But that's the only thing that I really, really thought about real hard was, was that. Going back in history and finding out things about what happened years ago, you know, those that really interested me. Yeah. Egypt and all those places. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. You know, you were you've been a part of so many musicians over the years. I mean, from you you know, you mentioned Cannonball and Freddie and Horace and Woody Shaw and all these cats. But I'm curious with specifically with Coltrane and Monk, when you were on that Bebop cusp, what was it like to be a part of something? I'm sure at the time it wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. 
But what was going on at that time that was so special about being in the jazz scene? Well, it was something that, thinking about it on that level, that I did not, I wasn't thinking about it in that way. I was here, and I was living, and I was enjoying myself. I mean, I could say things that happened to me that, uh, but I just was a, a, a young age, was experiencing things, and if I had re- realized that I was living in that dream, I would have taken it more seriously, I think. But I was just going through life and, and living, dealing with all the artists that I was around. I mean, I had opportunity to... Coltrane, at one point, my buddies, myself, Curtis Fuller, and Doug Watkins, we lived on 101st Street. Coltrane lived on 103rd Street. Had opportunity to go and be in his apartment several times, and he would just practice. I never saw an individual that practiced so much. He didn't speak too much. We never had any serious conversations, but just being in his company was amazing. The time that he put in at that particular time. See, I didn't know him when he was much younger, actually, but when I met him, he was going through that stage where he just practiced so much. So uh, it was a lot of growth happening. And, and then it was older gentlemen I w- who I was able to be around, like Coleman Hawkins and Roy Eldridge, and I had the opportunity to play with Lester Young. They were still, those artists were still here performing. So all of this was going on at the same time, and it was just something that I was able to be around Duke Ellington and Count Basie's band, especially Duke Ellington's band. I had the opportunity when I was with Oscar Peterson to be around Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald quite a bit. I had opportunity to meet Frank Sinatra, Gene Kelly. It was just something that was going on. I mean, Gene Cooper gave me a symbol. I still have it. Buddy Rich. Louis Belson was a very nice guy. I could just name, they were still living and performing. So I just was living life and being around it and not realizing that this is going to change and end, and I should try to absorb as much of this as possible. I absorbed a lot of it, but if I had been thinking like I do now, I would have got more of it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know, the one thing that I did want to ask you, too, you know, you just released a new album in 2015. You're still going strong. You have all this longevity. When you look back at when you began in the recording industry, are things better now for musicians? Is it easier for them to release albums and kind of be in control of their own destiny, or do you think it was better when you were starting out? Well, I, I feel a couple of ways about that, thinking about it right quick. I, It's not any bands now, groups that you can be in that the personnel stays the same and you can travel and really grow and get to know each other and people in the world can get to know these different people in a group that stays the same and you're being invited to people's homes and now the music is here but everybody's more uh, uh, individual has to do things differently. You have to teach. You have to go. It's no bands like that. Repeat myself. There's no groups like that. It's people teaching and 
you have to figure out another way to approach this. If, for making money that you can make now is much better, but you have to be a certain kind of person that know that you would know about business a little bit better. Which they, music is in the colleges now. It's not the club music is out there in places you date. Young people can grow up and play, and has they, they have places to play that's outside of colleges. Colleges, that's where you learn how to play now. I learned how to play uh, uh, outside with guys coming up. But now the colleges is where things are. And so people have more, the ability to deal with business is on a higher level now because you have to. You have all of these different things, computers and all things you have now. It's a different world. You know, when you get on stage, you know, a lot of times I hear in the world of jazz that you're having a conversation. What's, what's the best conversation you can have on stage with those that you're playing with? If the only thing I can feel about that is when you have opportunity to be with people that you would like to play with because, like to make music with, because you just want to do it and you're not thinking about money. You're not performing with these people because it's just a money thing. You're performing with them because you're just trying to express yourself and enjoy yourself. And the money's just there. And, and, you, and you express yourself through the music. That's the only conversation you need to have. If you're just making people yourself feel good and the other artists that you are playing with and, and the people. Along that same lines there, when you think about all the times you play live, is there a particular compliment you've gotten when you've gotten off stage that really sticks with you, one of the better compliments you've ever received? It's a person here in this area. He has been coming places that I have performed in New York for quite a long time. And he writes me these fantastic notes. And I've kept a lot of them, which I can't say what they are now because I can't remember. But it's so many. He's very good at writing and expressing himself that way. And he says things to me that uh, him and his wife, he, they, they say things to me that's fantastic. That's why I keep this stuff. <laughs> um, he makes a person feel very special. That's beautiful. Speaking of special, you've gotten a lot of awards over your life, from the Downbeat New Star Award in 61 to the Spirit of Detroit 2004. Let me ask you this. I don't want to know what, like, the best award you ever got, but was there an award that you received that kind of surprised you and knocked you uh, for a loop you didn't expect it? No, I mean, don't, the only award that I ever, awards, award that I've ever received that knocks me out is when you are accepted, when you're a young person, artist, and you're accepted by the artists that you have always wanted to be around and they accept you, when they accept you, that's the best award that I've ever gotten in my life uh, was just to be here in New York and to be accepted by these, at that time, by these magnificent artists that I had opportunities to perform with. And then I turned into one of the people that the youngsters are looking at when they're coming up. It's one of those people that I came up 
they look at me like it's amazing to be here and 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 have young people now looking at me the way I used to look at the older people then. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful, man. Full circle. Um, you know what? One of the beautiful uh, byproducts of being a musician is the amount of travel that you get to go on. And I want to know what has travel done to influence your music? How has it enhanced your voice as a musician? I would say naturally travel plays a part in anyone's life that is it's, that is wonderful. You can travel and you learn so much about different places in the world. That is, will enhance your thinking and languages and different people, you know, the culture. So that's a magnificent thing. That has to make you more of a, a, a special person to be able to realize that it's, it's more places in the world than just a little area that you grow up in. So that's a plus when you playing this art form. I would never have been able to. I mean, my mother and father and, and family and people that I've known, they never could have uh, had opportunity to experience places that I have experienced in my lifetime. I mean, I've got to the point now where I don't even like traveling too much. Yeah. I mean, I've traveled so much <laughs> in my life. I there's not too many places that I really want to go anymore. How difficult it is to travel now. You know, there's so many legends and luminaries and musicians that you've played with over the years. You have to have been taught so much. Let me ask you this. Is there anybody's advice that sticks with you all the time, that has stuck with you throughout your decades of longevity in jazz, that you remember before you either go on stage or pick up the sticks, anything that's really in your head? I've learned from little things that other artists have said to me and looking at other artists and uh, all of those different things that sometime I might be playing and someone come into my mind and I said, now, I wonder how this person would approach that. And then you can't approach anything like another person, but someone, but it does, they will come into my head because... Papa Joe Jones, Joe Jones. We spent a lot of, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with him. He liked me as an old gentleman. And a lot of times it wasn't about music, basically, or the drums. It was just about living life. The people that I've had the opportunity to meet and, and things that they would say, yes, they, had a, they have and had a, a, a big effect on me. When I'm playing our thinking about certain things musically, they they come into my head at certain times, and that's a good thing. Let me ask you this. For a man that has dedicated his life to jazz, loving it and playing it and making the world happy with it, why do you love jazz? It's an it's a art form that is a difficult art form to, to, to play. It's an art form that was born here in, in America, you never can get to the point where you feel like you have accomplished everything. Most people, you never, you're not that highly intelligent to to get to the point where you feel like you can't grow anymore. So it's a life of playing in some days, you know, because it, it depends on a lot of time how much time you put in and how intelligent you are. So it's a lifetime of growing, 
and you never get to the point where you feel like you have accomplished everything that you want to accomplish, you can get to the point where I feel that you have satisfied with what you did, what one performance are something, but it's always something to accomplish. You can always go higher. I mean, in playing with Oscar Peterson, he would say to me, when he, he said to me, you know, he used to practice 16 hours a day when he was a young person. That's a big accomplishment to do, especially when you're young, to to really be able to sit down and, and, and uh, practice 16 hours a day and, and really get something out of it. I mean, Phineas Newborn, you said to me, he he used to practice till his fingertips would bleed. And when I listen to Art Tatum, I, I think there's no one I've heard on any instrument that could that accomplish the level of playing on that that level what he accomplished. That's what I like about this art form. You can it's made me be a special person in this world as as I have been able to travel through this life has made me a special human being and has given me a place in this history that I feel good about. And people, the respect that I've gotten over the years from being a part of this art form makes me very comfortable. You've played with so many people over the years. And at this point, with a legendary status that you have, you could probably play with just about anybody. Is there anybody on your radar you would like to play with? Any young cats or anybody out there that you would love to play with? No, not now. But uh, I, I enjoy playing with a, a, a lot of artists, but it's no one that I'd look forward to actually playing with, uh, making history with at this point. Uh, years ago, I would have loved to have made some history with Miles Davis. We knew each other and was in each other's presence, and he wanted me to join his group at, at one point. But at that point, I, I was with Cannonball, and it was a real family, and I couldn't do that then. So that was when I was coming up. Miles, I, I liked, you know, I really, really enjoyed him as a person. But other than Miles, because I, I had opportunity to, to make a play concert with Theonius Monk and, and Sonny Rollins, and actually I recorded with John Coltrane. So those were people, and I had opportunity of playing and things with, with Coleman Hawkins and Roy Eldridge and Lester Young. So there's no one that I can think of that I really want to uh, make history with right now. I mean, I made history with the older guys and with the younger artists. So, no, J.J. Johnson, I report. So, no, it's so many. So yeah. There's no one now that I'm looking forward to making history with, actually. So let me ask you this. You know, everybody has a perception of who you are. The the fans, those that review your albums, your family does. But when you wake up in the morning, who are you? Who do you think you are, and what do you think you're putting out in the world? I have a, a, a special feeling of waking up and a godly feeling. I'm very special with that. That's as far as I'll take that. I enjoy myself. I mean, I enjoy who I am, in other words. So I feel very comfortable, very comfortable, I would say, being me. <laughs> right on. 
That's beautiful. I love that answer. This is, this is my final question for you. For a man that has produced so much over your career, when you sit back in the easy chair and you let your lids go down over your eyes and you think about this life well lived, how would you want the children of the future that peel back the layers of jazz, this magical American art form, to remember you and who you are and what you've given to the world? I would say, say Louis Hayes was a person that brought, especially playing the drums, brought a magnificent feeling to myself first and the musicians second and the people third. Beautiful. I like that. That's a perfect way to wrap everything up. Mr. Hayes, thank you for opening up. This was an honor and a thrill. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another very special Neon Jazz interview session where we give you a bit of insight into the legends that have given us all that jazz. And thanks to Mr. Hayes for his history, his graciousness, and that great music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. And you can always visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.